God's word. Today's passage is in Romans chapter 8, which is on page 944 in the Bibles around the room. We'll be starting in verse 31. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the reading of God's word, and you'll respond, thanks be to God. This is our affirmation of this book's identity as divine and of our gratitude for having it in our hands. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Pray with me. Loving God, you know the stormy trials that your children endure here and across the nations. Opposition, accusations, oppression, condemning judgments, anxiety, reproach for your name's sake, going without, threats of attack. And you know that the very temptation we face in that hour is to doubt that you love us. Seize hold of our hearts today with your blood-proven love with such force that these questions and answers of yours become our own strong personal convictions. With that strong conviction swelling in our hearts, cause us to rise triumphantly above the storm and walk where once we sank in despair. Comfort our suffering brothers and sisters around the world with this undefeatable assurance. Awaken with your love those who are not yet in Christ. In the name of our conquering Lamb, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jere. Man, after you pray, I just feel like we conquered the world. (laughs) Well, good morning, church. How you guys doing today? My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors. If you're a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. I know it can be very intimidating to come into a church, so I commend you for your courage. What you need to know about this church is that we're not going to force you to do anything you don't feel comfortable doing. Uh, We're just here to seek God, and you're welcome to join us in that. And we seek God through the Bible because we believe that God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. And we're in Romans chapter 8 today, which on the Bibles we said around the room is on page 944. So if you don't have it open right now, get to that page. And um, we're going through this chapter 8. And we're calling it the greatest chapter in the Bible. And the bad news is today is that today we finished the chapter. So uh, everybody go, oh, the greatest chapter of the Bible is over. Um, 
But it's really, this, this section of the Bible is one of the best sections in all of the scriptures. And so as we're going through this today, what I would encourage you is, if you feel like giving praise to God, do it. Like, say amen, which is just a churchy way of saying, yes, I believe that. Yes, indeed. Okay? So if you don't want to say amen, say yes. If you don't want to say yes, say hallelujah. That just means praise God. Or just say praise God. Like, Give praise to God because of this text today, okay? So to begin us out today, I'd like to go to some words of Jesus in John chapter 10, which is going to be on the screen behind me. And in John 10, Jesus said some very comforting words that I think are really the, the capture what Romans 8 is saying. Jesus said in John 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus says no one, any, anybody who belongs to me, nobody will be able to snatch them out of my hand. This is the good news of the gospel. There's a guy in our church named John Walker, and he sends me emails every once in a while. And when he signs his email at the bottom, instead of saying sincerely or talk to you soon or grace to you, he says, in his grit. And every time I read that, I'm just reminded of, of the wonderful news that if we belong to God, if we love Jesus, we're in his grip, and nothing will separate us from that. Nothing. We are in his grip. And that's basically what Paul is saying through this section. And in this section, he asks five questions. Each question addresses a concern that we have. And his encouragement to us is that in the middle of that concern, you have to remember that you're in his grip. So we're going to break down each one of those questions. So first of all, the first question is this, found in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This addresses the concern of opposition. The concern of opposition. If you're a human, you will face opposition in life. Right? Just by being a human. There's going to be many things that come against you. And then furthermore, if you choose to align yourself with Jesus, who said he's the light... In the middle of darkness, darkness hates the light. So if you're aligning yourself with Jesus, you're going to find even more opposition. You're going to find opposition. So what is this opposition? Who shall oppose us? Who shall come against us? Well, first of all, Paul has already established in chapter 7 of Romans that the main opposition that we face is our own sin within us. Sin is simply, it's living life on your terms instead of God's terms. But the thing about it is God is the creator of life. So he's asking you to live his way because he wants to give you life. Sin says, no, I'm going to live this way, a different way. But that always leads to death. And inside every one of us is a struggle of wanting to obey God, but in our hearts wanting to obey sin. Anybody feel that struggle? I mean, it's a war. So you might be new to church, and here's what you need to know about this church. We do not think we're awesome. We are here because we know that sin is in us and it's against us. It affects our heart, our mind, our will, our emotions. It affects everything about us and it sucks. (laughs) 
It's like a giant that we can't conquer. And I know that many of us have hidden sins that we just keep living in because we're believing that they're too big for us to conquer. Another opposition that we have is others, other sinners, which, by the way, that's everybody. So it's like you take one sinner and you put them in relationship with another sinner and it doesn't equal a harmonious relationship. It equals conflict. It's not like multiplying negatives. Two negatives times each other equals a positive. Like, that's not how it works. It's sinners get together in relationship and then there's conflict against each other. So oftentimes in relationships, we'll feel like there's other people coming against us. Husbands and wives, amen? Mothers and children, amen? Uh, employees and co-workers, Employees and bosses, bosses and employees, people in the church. Like, there's people that come against you all the time because there's sin in all of us. There's rebellion in all of us. There's selfishness in all of us. So that's coming against us. And then furthermore, we have a real enemy called the devil. The devil is the, was, he was an angel. And he rebelled against God in pride and he took a third of the angels with him. And now they hate God and they hate those who are made in his image. And so now they want to oppose humans. And so we have all these things culminating and it just seems also like the pressures of life are coming against us, does it not? The expectations of culture. You watch social media, you read the news and you say, I'm not doing good enough. Everything is coming against you. Your own insecurities. Standing in line and looking at the magazine rack and then looking at yourself. That comes against us. Our thoughts come against us. So what do we do with these great enemies? How do we battle it? Well, Paul gives us the answer. He says, well, you have to remember that God is for you. How do we come against these giants? Well, remember that God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can really be against us? It's like when I was playing basketball in middle school, we used to go out at lunch and play hoops, and the eighth graders would always have the court, and they would say, you guys can have the court if you can beat us. Now, us as a bunch of little sevies, we couldn't beat the eighth graders. There's no chance. They dominated us every single time. But just suppose that LeBron James and you know, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry all came up, and they said, we're on the seventh graders team. That's a game changer, Right? No little group of eight graders can handle them. Well, in the same way, Paul is saying, when you realize that God is for you in Christ, it doesn't matter how big the giants are, he reduces them down to ants. It reminds me of the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. There's two armies, God's army of Israel and then the army of the Philistines who are trying to kill God's people. And Goliath, a giant, comes out. He's over 10 feet tall. His spear, it says, is like a weaver's beam. I don't even know what that is, but it just sounds big. <laughs> and he comes out trying to kill. The, and, he says, and he says, hey, you guys send out a warrior to fight me. And whoever wins, will be, if you guys win, we'll be your servants. If I win, you guys be my servants. And Israel was terrified. Oh, no, nobody can beat Goliath. And David, a little shepherd boy, comes over because he's visiting his brothers on the front line to give them food. And he's like, who does this Philistine think he is? Talking about our army and the living God. And he says, I'll go fight him. <laughs> the army's just like, go ahead, David. So just let this little boy go out to fight this guy. And they, he tries on 
all the armor and it doesn't fit. And he's like, no, I'll just go. I got God with me. And he goes out and he picks up some stones from a stream and he goes and kills Goliath with a slingshot. And it's not because David is awesome. That's not the point of the story. The story is that if God is for you, who can be against you? So therefore, we can live confidently. Um, The next concern that we have is a concern of God's provision. Isn't it true that when life hits the fan, the thing that we start wondering is, is God really going to provide for me? Is God really good? Is he going to come through on his promises? Isn't that true? Like, um, we, maybe it's financial provision for you. Life is just tough right now, and, and you're like, ah, I can't trust God with my money, therefore I need to take things into my own hands. Or, or maybe it's emotional provision for you. Life is just such a drag that you're just like, you know what, forget God. I need to take care of myself. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a provision of glory. You're reading this and you're like, glory's not coming and you're just tired of life. Like I met so many people that just told me, they said, you know what, forget 2017. 2017 was horrible. Maybe that just has weighed on you so much that you've started to doubt whether or not God is really going to come through with glory. Well, how do we deal with that? Paul tells us. He says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, you have to remember, how how are you supposed to trust if God's going to provide in the current? You have to look to how God has provided in the past. And this is a historical event. He pulls out a historical event. Jesus dying on the cross is not allegory. It actually happened. Check the historical records, not even just by Christians, but also by Jews and by the Greeks and the Romans. This happened. He said, he points back to a historical event where God gave his only son, his only son. It's not like Jesus was some annoying, disobedient angel in heaven where God's like, ah, get away from me. Go save the humans. That's not what happened. God loved you so much, even while you were running away from him, that he sent his own son to die for you. What that means is as Jesus is hanging there on the cross and the blood is flowing from his veins, it's not just another man's blood, it's the ruby riches of heaven. God's treasure, all that he had. And when you look back at God's provision on the cross, you can be comforted that God will take care of you now and in the future no matter how bad your circumstances might be. Imagine that you were a little kid and you wanted to go to Disneyland and you were really wanting to go, but your parents said, you know what, kids, it's just too expensive. You can't go to Disneyland. Like, but secretly they started saving money. And then at Christmas time, you come out and you open a box and out of the box comes up this Mickey Mouse balloon attached to it, tickets to Disneyland and a picture of the hotel which you're staying at already purchased. When you look at that and you're like, yes, your parents say, we're going tomorrow. You get in the car. You don't sit in the car thinking, I wonder if mom and dad are going to buy gas. Like, I wonder if they're going to buy food for us when we're down here. Have they thought about that? Have they thought about, like, the clothes we're going to wear? Of course they had. Because they already made the great payment. You can be sure that they're going to take care of you along the way. 
And in the same way, in an even greater way, is it not true? God has already made the great payment for our souls. Can we not just trust that even in the worst circumstances, God is going to still hold us in his grip? We're in his good grip. We're in his good, loving hands. He's got us. He's taking care of us. The next concern is a concern of accusation. Look at verse 33. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, that word justify is a word that means God who declares acceptable. The longing of every human heart is to be declared right and acceptable to God. That's what we all want. To be declared without sin and to be declared good and righteous. This is why even when you talk to people outside the church, they say, man, as long as I can just do more good than bad, I think I'll be good with God. Because they know something deep in them needs to be declared good. The bad news is we'll never be able to do it through our works. You are worse than you think, and so am I. But the gospel says we're more loved than we can imagine. And as we are loved... God sent his son Jesus to live perfectly on our behalf. Have you noticed that Jesus didn't just come down when he was 33 years old and then die and then go back up to heaven? He came down and lived a whole life. Why? Because he had to live perfectly on our behalf. Every way that we fail God and fail to be obedient to him, he lived perfectly on our behalf. In thought, word, and deed. Think about that for a moment. He never lusted. As a kid, he always obeyed. Like, he never was greedy. When he saw somebody he should help, he never was like, eh, no, I'm too busy for this, and went the other way. He always helped. He was always merciful. He was always loving. He was never selfish. He did all of this on our behalf. And then on the cross, what was he doing? Is He was dying for our sins. In order for God to declare us right and good, Somebody had to pay for sin, and so that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. So 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sinful in order that we might become righteous. So when God looks at a Christian, he looks at you with the cloak of Jesus. Little old you, sinner you, screwed up, jacked up you. In faith, he says you're righteous. Now this is not something you earn. You don't get your life together and then God declares that about you. It's just something you accept through faith, which means this. You could have been out there in those doors committing murder. And if you walked in these doors and you said, I believe in Jesus, you're declared righteous. You still probably have to go to jail, but you could be declared righteous. It doesn't matter what you've done. Through faith, God sees Christ. Now, that's the good news of being a Christian, but as you believe that, there's all these different things that come against you to try to point out and bring charges against you that you are not acceptable to God. Anybody feel this? First of all, the things that come and bring charges against us, one of them is a good thing. It's God's law, God's commands. Ever read God's commands and you just get like, just weighed down because you're like, man, I just do not keep these. God says, don't commit idolatry, but I place so many things before him. God says, don't covet, but I love my neighbor's car. God says, you know, always be truthful, but I'm, I'm a deceiving hypocrite. Like God's law points out and brings charges against us for the purpose 
of showing us how much we need Jesus. But in and of itself, it does bring charges against us. Who else brings the charges against us? Our own conscience does, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't even need to read the Bible to know that we're jacked up. We just wake up in the morning feeling wrong. Or is that just me? Man, I have like these, I have a prayer journal and probably 80% of the time in the morning I just write, God, I feel messed up. <laughs> because my conscience is bringing charges against me. And then furthermore, people love to bring charges against us all the time. Isn't it weird that humanity loves to point out flaws in us? And then the devil, his name is the slanderer or the accuser. He's constantly doing this, this in heaven. And so Paul says, how are we supposed to handle these charges? Because truthfully, if we're standing in the courts of heaven before the white throne of judgment, we have to be like, you know what? They're right. I am messed up. Well, Paul says, here's how you handle it. Two ways. Like a great defense attorney, he stands up and he makes his case. And he says, first of all, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, it is God who wanted these people. God is the one who gets to choose who he wants. Satan doesn't get to choose if you're acceptable to God. Your conscience doesn't get to choose whether or not you're acceptable to God. Your feelings, the world doesn't get to choose this. Only God gets to. And if you believe in Jesus, if you love him with your heart, then God has declared you as his. You belong to him. You're in his grip. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is, and by the way, it's God who justifies. It's funny that our conscience, the devil, other people are all pointing out our works and how they've gone wrong. But Paul is saying, you could never be justified by your works in the first place because your works were always failing. You needed God to declare you just, not you. It's God who does it. And if God you know, began to love you way back when, he's certainly going to keep you in his grip. So the next concern is this. It says, uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the next concern is condemnation. The one previous was accusation. Now this one's condemnation. The difference between accusation and condemnation is accusation is pointing out the flaws. Condemnation is wanting to see them pay. It's the price. So put it like this. Accusation, you take a test and miss a bunch of questions. That's your flaws. Condemnation is receiving the F for missing those questions. Accusation is your uh, fellow employee saying, this man stole. Condemnation is your boss firing you. Accusation is you going to court and being brought under trial for a criminal activity. Condemnation is your sentence. And in the court of heaven, we have sinned against God. And sin always strives for condemnation, which is death. That's the, that's the penalty for sin. And so not only do people want to point out your flaws, they want to see you pay. And not only does the devil want to point out your flaws, he wants to see you pay the penalty of death and separation from God forever because he hates God. But Paul says, who is to condemn? In other words, who is to make us pay? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Translation, he already paid. <laughs> like there's nothing left to pay if you're in Christ. He already paid. And more than that, he was raised. Okay, so in other words, to give you new life. And he's at the right hand of God, and he's indeed interceding for us. 
Meaning this, that when he was raised from the dead, which I know it sounds crazy, it's true, it's just crazy that he did that. He did that so we could have new life. The book of John tells us that when Jesus raised from the dead, he had holes in his hands and his feet to remind everybody, heaven, hell, and humanity, that he already paid. And so he sits in heaven at the right hand of God. And so in the courtroom, when you have your conscience and the devil and other people pointing out your flaws, Jesus reaches out his hand and says, I already paid. So when the charge comes against you, that you're a hypocrite and you're unworthy of heaven, Jesus reaches out his hand and says, I already paid. When the charge comes against you that says you're an adulterer and you should never be let in, he reaches out his hand and says, I already paid. When the charge comes against you that says you're a liar, you're selfish, you're prideful, you're arrogant, he says, I already paid, I already paid, I already paid. When the charge comes to me and says, this guy's a pastor, he's supposed to be declaring the glories of God, but he wants people to focus on him. Jesus reaches his hand out and says, but I already paid. There is nothing left to pay. This is why on the cross, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which was Aramaic for saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was embracing hell on the cross. He wasn't just another man dying a criminal's death. He was going to hell so you don't have to. He was embracing hell. And then after he said that, he said, it is finished. Better translation would be paid in full. It's already been paid. So we got to remember what he did for us. And then the next concern we have is the concern of being separated from God. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Like relationships are fragile, are they not? I talk with so many people and they say, you know, they had a split up or a breakup or a divorce. And I say, what happened? And they said, you know, this event or this event, it just began to drive a wedge between us. And I think the real, if we, if we just have a moment of honesty and vulnerability together as a congregation, a great concern of ours is that even though we know we believe in Jesus, we start to wonder, will I ever be separated from him? Like, could life get so bad or could my faith get so fickle that God would let me go? Could, could I ever get to the point where I frustrate him and he's just like, you know what, you're really annoying me, get out of here. That's an honest question that we're asking. And so Paul brings up these concerns and he says, let's, let's take a look at them. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall these things drive a wedge between us and God? Shall tribulation, just another word for trials, You ever feel like trials are so heavy upon you that you just can't keep going? Shall that separate you from the love of God? Or what about distress? This just means overwhelming anxiety, which I've read some studies that say up to 30% of the population struggle with. Overwhelming anxiety, which often leads to depression and that dark night of the soul. Are you separated from God at that moment? Or persecution, meaning people being opposed to you. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this in America, but it's there. You start going public with your faith, people will come against you. You stand with Jesus on what he says about a whole mess of things, on life from the womb to the tomb in every race, people are gonna come against you. You stand with Jesus on what he says about matters of sexuality, people will persecute you. 
on what he says about matters of marriage, people will persecute you. On what he says about matters of truthfulness and how you should handle your money, people will come against you. And more than people coming against us, like here in America, there's real people, our brothers and sisters in other places like Syria today being beheaded for simply saying, I believe in Jesus. But will that, that kind of torture and pain, will that separate you from the love of God? Or what about a famine? This is also hard for us to understand because we just go to Taco Bell and get like food for three months for 10 bucks. Well, that, what if a famine hits? Now, I know it's kind of hard for us to think about a famine, but like we would be arrogant to think that famines aren't still possible. We're only a few bad political decisions from an all-out war happening, and I'm not making a political statement on one side or the other. I'm just like, if you study history, a lot of times famines happen as a result of war. So that could happen. And then a few bad turns of nature could happen. And then there's no food. And if we're left without food, are we going to start to abandon God because we worship the God of our bellies? Does that mean God has given up on us? Or what about nakedness when it's not just food, but literally the clothes from your back are taken from you? Or danger. When people are hunting you for simply believing you believed in, saying you believed in Jesus, which happened to the Roman church just 15 years later after this was written. Or sword. And Paul goes on and he quotes a Psalm, Psalm 44. He says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The next line in that Psalm says, God, will you please wake up from your slumber? Sometimes life gets so bad and so many people are against us that we think that God is sleeping. And what Paul is bringing up is he's saying, No, God's not sleeping. You have not been separated from his love. He says in verse 37, No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, nothing will be able to release you from God's loving arms. Nothing. He says in verse 38, for I am sure. Okay, now when he says, I am sure, Paul's not talking to us like a recent high school graduate time to tell a bunch of adults how to live their life. Paul's talking to us as a veteran who has suffered. By this point in his life, he's faced many imprisonments. He's gone without food for weeks on end. He's been beaten almost to the point of death. One time he was stoned with rocks to the point that they thought he was dead. He's been in prison. He's been shipwrecked. He knows what's suffering. And he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Nothing. Not death, not life. Many of us fear death. It's so scary, isn't it? But you don't have to fear death. Because if you're in his loving arms, he'll hold you all the way through it. Life. Sometimes people don't fear death. They fear life. Because <laughs> sometimes life is a lot more scary. I would just rather die. <laughs> but you don't have to fear life. Because God has you in his loving arms. Neither angels nor rulers. These are speaking about... Uh, Angels and demons. If Gabriel himself went up to God and said, God, I don't think you should let this person in. God would say, excuse me, they're mine. If a demon, if Satan himself tried to oppose you and tried to rip you out of God's hand, he would not let you, God would not let you go. Satan himself is not strong enough to do this. 
And he says, nor things present, nor things to come. Are you worried about your present circumstances? They will not tear you away from God. Nor things to come. Are you worried about things that could happen in the future? You're one of those people. You got like a bunch of barrels in your basement and you're like stored up with flour and flaxseed and corn. You know, like you're ready to go for the apocalypse. It doesn't, many, many people think this world's going to hell in a a handbasket. But you know what? If it does, that won't separate you from the love of God. If it does. What about, he he continues on. He He says, uh, nor powers. I mean, that's political powers. I mean, these people had to deal with crazy Nero 15 years later. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He's literally reaching for words. He's saying, if you could run far enough in some like weird sci-fi way, get to another galaxy, you still wouldn't be able to outrun God. If you were trying to swim down to the bottom of the ocean in the Mariana Trench, God would be like, I'm here. <laughs> like you wouldn't be able to get rid of God. Nothing in all creation will separate you from the love of God, including you. Which means this. If you try to run away from God, if you really belong to him, he will bring you home. So stop running. It's not worth it. (laughs) It's not worth it. C.S. Lewis called God the holy hound of heaven. Just receive his love. Now, some people say, Pastor, this is a dangerous doctrine. If you tell people that there's nothing that can separate them from the love of God, then they're just going to eat, drink, and be merry and live sinful lives. And I say, well, I don't think so. They might try to test the limits of God's grace, but eventually they'll love God so much they'll live wholehearted, wholehearted devotion to him. If you were a child and your parents said, you have to obey, otherwise we'll stop loving you, That doesn't make you love your parents more. It makes you hate them. It's when you're a child and your parents tell you, I love you so much that there's nothing you could ever do that could make me stop loving you. You might push the boundaries of that, but eventually you'll realize that, man, if my mom and dad want me to do anything, it must be for my own good because they love me that deeply. And that is what this cultivates. It cultivates love for God. Nothing can take away your salvation if you truly belong to him because you're in his grip. So what are a few application points? Number one is this. Life is a battlefield. You know there was that 80 songs? Love is a battlefield. <laughs> Life is a battlefield. It's not a walk in the park. Many people become Christians or think they do and then they walk away from Jesus because they're not getting their best life now. This is not the Oprah show where I'm gonna give you a car after this. Life is very difficult. Just being a human, that's true, even more so being a Christian. Because Jesus said, if you're gonna follow me, you also have to take part in my sufferings because in our sufferings, he's molding us to be more like him, but he's also showing the world that there's something better than this world has to offer. He's glorifying his name. So You just need to get rid of the idea that becoming a Christian is going to make everything easy. It won't. It'll make it harder, but it'll make it more worth it. Because you'll live for something that actually matters. And you'll be living for eternity. The second point of application is simple. It's this. Live confidently. If God is for us, who can be against us? How come... I'm speaking to the Christians here. How come, as Christians, sometimes we're so embarrassed just to admit that we love Jesus? Right? Like, even me as a pastor, like, sometimes in my neighborhood, 
like, conversations will come up. This is what I think. This is what I believe. And I'll be like, I'm a Christian, you know. And I just like sheepishly hide. Why? Why? Because I'm scared of opposition. That's why. But we don't need to be. So my charge to you is go public as a Christian. <laughs> Live confidently. It's very simple. Don't be the jerk. Don't be the guy who's like, I'm a Christian. You guys all have to believe this. And you're like forcing Bible verses down people. So don't be that guy. That's actually not loving people, is it? But go public. Be confident. So what it could look like is if your boss asks you to cut corners, you need to tell your boss, you know what, sir, I respect you, but I'm going to go with Jesus on, the one, on this one. He wants me to be truthful. And if your boss says, I'm going to fire you, say, well, I'm with Jesus. If, if your friends, if your, if your friends want you to go out, if you're like in high school or junior high, your friends want you to go out and do things that you know Jesus would not be happy with, you need to say, friends, hey, listen, I love you guys. I'm your, we're, we're cool, but I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. And if they make fun of you, who cares? God is for you. And if, if you're somebody who gets into a conversation where uh, people are, you have an opportunity to stand up for the oppressed, like the Bible tells us to do and how Jesus did, and you start to do it and people start to disagree with you, it doesn't matter, even if it's your own family, because God is for you. So live confidently. Be a confident Christian. And then next, stop condemning. Stop condemning. If the devil himself has no case against you to bring condemnation, stop condemning yourself. Many of us, we know we've screwed up, we know we've messed up, but we live our whole lives trying to beat ourselves up for the wrong we've done. And you don't have to. Jesus paid it all. Therefore, you don't have to beat yourself up any longer. You need to get over it because Jesus already is. He already paid it. So stop condemning yourself. And then also stop condemning others who are in Christ. Actually, just stop condemning others altogether because it's not us, up to us to make anybody pay. It's God who justifies and it's God who condemns. It's not up to us. So stop doing that. Now, I'll tell you, there's a few people who have wronged me in the past three years that every time their name comes up, oh man, do I just want to unload about them. You know why? Because deep down there's something in me that feels good because I feel like I'm making them pay. And I need to repent. I need to get over that. Because God already is. Because he's already paid for them on the cross. And you guys need to do the same. And so as a church, we do, you know, that means this. Husbands and wives, stop holding grudges over each other's head over stuff that's happened in the past. It's already paid for. It's already paid for. Parents and children, it's already paid for. You have to believe this. It's already paid for. And then lastly, the last one is this. Um, breathe in trust. What I mean by that is this. If there's nothing, literally nothing, that can separate you from God's love, then relax a little and breathe. Breathe. Even when life is really hard, breathe and trust that God is working it out and you're still in his grip. Breathe. I was talking about this with my wife last night. She's like, you know, it's like when we're in working out and it's really hard and you're like running and you just feel like you want to die, right? You guys feel that before? Like there's no such thing as a fun run because they're all just death runs. It all hurts. <laughs> when, you're, when you're in the middle of just feeling like that and you feel like you want to die, freaking out doesn't help. Like freaking out and trying to hold your breath, 
like, that doesn't help when you're trying to run. You have to breathe. And in many ways, life feels like that. And, and you feel like the, at, at the end of yourself and you feel like you're just persevering. Well, freaking out won't help. Breathe and trust that you belong to God. Trust the historical fact that God has bought you with the treasure of heaven and you're still in his hands. Amen? And to trust means, it doesn't mean that you're gonna have everything figured out. It doesn't mean that you're gonna just immediately trust God, hook, line, and sinker, but just start with a little bit of trust. God, I trust that you've done this and I trust that you got me. And that's the invitation for us today, to breathe and to trust. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you that you're holding us. Thank you that your grip is stronger than anything else in all creation. And nothing can separate us from you. There's brothers and sisters in this room who are just, who are just going through the thick of it right now. And we pray that you would grant them trust. And we pray that you would help us to surround each other with love, encouraging each other to look at your past faithfulness to us so that we can trust in your current and future faithfulness to us. We ask that you would grant this by your love and your grace. Amen. As we meditate on that promise, um, we're going to come forward and take the Lord's Supper. And we're told by, by 